This is Being Catholic with Bob Johnston on Catholic Spirit Radio. Hi, this is Bob Johnston, and you're listening to Being Catholic right here on Catholic Spirit Radio, 89.5 FM and 92.5 FM in good old McLean County in Bloomington Normal, 88.3 in Pontiac, 97.1 in Lincoln, 89.1 in DeKalb Sycamore, 89.3 in Morris Joliet, 88.9 88.9 in Rockford, Marengo, Harvard, and the Beloit area, covering much of central Illinois and also now much of northern Illinois, thanks to you. We're going to have a great show for you today. I want to wish a Merry Christmas to everybody out there. Uh, Christmas is coming up very quickly, and this will be our last show until after Christmas. Uh, we won't be with you again next week, but we will shortly after that. Uh, I'm here with my wife, Lynn. Remember always that we're brought to you by you, and we couldn't broadcast without you. So always, as, as, as before, any donation that you can make is always appreciated, whether it's large or small. And uh, if you'd like to make a donation, and we hope you would like to make a donation, you can do that by going to our website, and that's catholicspiritradio.com. Again, that's catholicspiritradio.com. You can also call us at 309-807-2427. Again, that's 309-807-2427. We're going to have a great show for you today. I'm here with my wife, Lynn. And uh, before we start the show, we're going to read a short story, and it's a Christmassy story, and maybe talk uh, about a few other Christmas things. And before I start, I want to turn this over to my wife, Lynn, and see what she has to say. Merry Christmas. <clears throat> Hope you enjoy yours, and you're blessed. We're all blessed with the coming of, of the Lord. We're, the <clears throat> Christmas season is always so special, very busy. We've been very busy, too, you know, but when it comes Christmas Day, it's just wonderful. And that Christmas Eve, when that Christmas star comes out, you better watch because that's when you begin to celebrate that holy feast. And I was wrong last week, I think. I said something about uh, the old anathoms. They really are the week of this coming week, this starting this week, I think. Oh, Israel or Jerusalem and so forth. Those anathoms are read during this week from the to prepare us for the coming of the Christ child. So... I hope you all have a very blessed day. Okay, Bob. Okay, we're going to read a story here, and it's entitled The Innkeeper's Wife, and uh, it's written by uh, Joseph Benevento, and it appears in the New Oxford Review magazine, and it's the uh, December 2023 issue. And Joseph Benevento is a retired professor, a retired professor after 40 years, uh, as a professor of English at Truman State University in Kirksville, Missouri. And uh, he taught creative writing there and also American literature. And the story here is an adaptation of the sixth chapter in his recently published novel about the life of the Holy Family from the viewpoint of St. Joseph. It's entitled, uh, the, the, the book itself, the novel, is entitled My Perfect Wife or Perfect Son. And uh, this chapter... Uh, this short story is uh, adapted from the chapter is uh, called the uh, 
innkeeper's wife, and that's the title of his story here, The Innkeeper's Wife. And it's a very interesting story, and it's published, uh, the, the novel itself, again, is uh, My Perfect Wife and Her Perfect Son. That's the title of his novel, and it's published by Addis, Addison and Highsmith uh, of hyster- History of Books. And all royalties from the sale, if anyone wants to get this book, I'm sure you can order it on Amazon uh, or probably, you know, at the bookstore. And all royalties from the sale of the novel will go to Catholic Charities of Central and Northern Missouri. So we'll go ahead and read from this adapted short story from his novel. And uh, it says here, The cave was spacious. The goats, the fowl, and the owner's mule all had sufficient room. None of the animals seemed to object to our presence. In fact, we put our donkey in a makeshift stall right next to the mule, and neither of them seemed a bit disturbed. The trick was to find room for ourselves and for the little one to come. The owner had allowed us to shelter in his manger and line it with hay. He told us we could settle in wherever we could make room so long as we didn't disturb his milking goats. That man was really fond of his goats. The innkeeper's affection for his goats was the reason he offered his stable to us after telling us there was no room in his inn. To call the place an inn was being generous. The man and his wife had a modest three-bedroom home. Two of the bedrooms they rented to infrequent boarders. It was our bad luck that both rooms were occupied by Roman soldiers, assigned to Bethlehem, for census purposes. Neither pagan was inclined to give up his bed to a very pregnant Jew and her frantic husband. If it were up to me, I'd have them both out on their ears, the innkeeper said. I'll be lucky if they pay me when they get ready to leave. What recourse will I have if they decide not to? To whom would I complain? Besides God himself, who's very good at keeping silent about these Romans. I'm sorry, but there's nothing I can do. The innkeeper was a handsome man, tall and erect, with black hair and a heavy beard. His piercing dark eyes shone with indignation. But when Mary grimaced a little from a sudden contraction, he was moved to sympathy. Bashaw Atova, he said to Mary, the blessing for a pregnant woman. It seemed as though by invoking that blessing, he was trying to forestall the good hour of our son's birth coming too soon. I'd give you my own room, I really would, he continued, but my wife is not well, and I can't in all mercy make her leave the comfort of her bedroom, what little comfort it is. If not for that, the two of us would sleep with the goats tonight and let you have our room, but it can't be helped. And where do your goats sleep, Mary asked, in a gentle tone, to which only a Roman could be immune. Oh, my goats, my beautiful goats. Wait till you taste the cheese that comes from them. It's the best you'll ever have had. Why, they sleep in the cave just next to our house. I fixed it up for them. It's nicer than some houses. And do you think your goats could bear some company for a time, she asked. You're not thinking of sleeping in a stable of farm animals, I interjected, wondering how Mary could have believed for a minute that the son of the Most High should enter the world in such a place. And why not? the innkeeper asked. I'm not joking. Many people don't have such a nice abode. There are no swine in my stable, 
no animal that would defile a woman to look upon as she is with child. It's a wonderful idea, young woman. This is no time to be proud. We'll make you comfortable. Let's go. Mary smiled, thanked the man, and looked at me with those eyes, halfway between blue and gray, which could never be denied anything I might offer. We made our way to the cave. My plan had been to stay with my brother and to have his wife help with the delivery, as a man is not to look upon a woman when she delivers a child, and I thereby had no sense of how I could help. How were we going to get through this? Where was the Lord of hosts when he needed him? The innkeeper, whose name we learned was Micah, was as good as his word. He took the time to be certain that we were as comfortable as possible. I'm sure there are poor people who have less comfortable hovels than the cave where the Son of Most High would enter the world. Still, it seemed ridiculous to me that the Lord would choose such an unlikely birthplace for his only son. Perhaps it had all been alive from the start. The one thing that made me doubt that conclusion was my now complete certainty that Mary had known no man, had never been unfaithful to me. Still, it wasn't impossible that a demon had tricked her, tricked us, and led us now to this unholy place to have this unholy child, perhaps a child who would be part goat. I tried to keep such doubts from suffocating me, especially since it is difficult for those who lack faith to pray, and I really needed to pray. Mary rested in the hay as well as she could. She moaned every now and again, but I could see that she was trying her best not to alarm me, though I remembered my mother telling me more than once that no pain, no pain a man might endure could compare to the pain she had suffered to bring me into the world. Still, Mary tried to keep a smile on her face, tried to reassure me. I could see already that my mother had been right. Also, when she told me a woman could bear with grace pain that a man might not survive. Nothing can be more natural, my husband. All will go well, Mary said, as if I were the one who needed comforting. Is there something I should be doing? I stammered. Mary didn't answer. I could tell she was praying. She didn't look frightened, but rather suffused with faith and love. A she-goat came near to her, and I rose to ward it off. But it was as gentle as any lamb and seemed as though it was there to protect my wife. It stood nearby and responded to Mary's moaning with her own soft bleats. I, too, then decided to pray. The cave was lit by my one lantern, which the innkeeper had generously refilled with oil. Its rays were sufficient, though, for me to see everything I needed to see. My wife, the gentle goat, and the quickly diminishing time between Mary's contractions. I prayed the Psalms of David that I had been told to pray near the time of delivery. I offered to take any pain the Most High would see fit to place upon me, if he might only see my wife, my lovely, holy Mary, through this dilemma. I knew there was only holiness in that dark cave, and so I prayed some more. Suddenly, I heard voices and the footsteps of people approaching the cave. Micah burst in, accompanied by a woman. Am I too late? The woman asked breathlessly. Am I too late to be of service? I looked puzzlingly at the innkeeper. This is my wife, Ruth, he explained. 
When I told her who I had in the cave, she jumped out of her sickbed like someone fleeing a fire. She insisted on coming to see if she could help. But if she has a sickness, I questioned. My sickness is mostly of the heart, Ruth explained. Micah and I have not been blessed with children, though I have longed for a family for as long as I can remember. I will do your child and your spouse only good. I have much experience. I'm the oldest of nine children. I have, no, I have experience no man can have. Ruth, you are a blessing from the Most High himself, Mary said, in a voice closer to that of an angel than a suffering woman. Prepare a place for your child, Ruth told me. Micah, warm water to bathe the child after he is received into the world, and pray, always pray. Ruth was short and frail, but her kind nature seemed to give her strength. I felt certain that she and her husband were gifts sent to us by the Holy Spirit. My confidence and happiness grew, even as I heard Mary cry out again and again, since I could also hear Ruth's words of encouragement, her confident voice assuring me that all was proceeding in a normal way. It seemed to take forever, but soon I heard a loud, lusty cry, the indignant but sweet and certain cry of a newborn baby. I fell to my knees and praised the Lord, thanked the Holy Spirit, and blessed the day the Lord had chosen me to stand in for him as father to this infant boy. Micah returned with the water, and after the baby was made clean, these wonderful strangers put him in swaddling clothes, perhaps the very clothing they had hoped to place on their own child. Ruth then handed the baby to me. When I held the infant and gently swayed him in my arms, he stopped crying and gazed up at me as if he knew me. I looked for some sign that this child was really the son of the Most High, but I saw merely a newborn infant, seemingly as helpless as any other infant, and one who would need my love and protection for years to come. The pride I felt just holding him in my arms made me know that I would do anything to keep him safe and secure. I walked the newborn back toward Mary, but Rue said, No, you hold him for now. I must administer to your wife some more. Then you can be together in your joy. Congratulations and a thousand blessings upon you, Micah said to me as he appeared at our little child. What name will you give this son of yours? His name shall be Jesus, Mary called out in a voice triumphant with the joy that only a mother can know. Jesus, I repeated, and may the blessing you wish upon us return to you and your wife with a thousandfold, I said to Micah. Amen, Mary said, amen. Even from a distance and with my view partially blocked by the she-goat that had never strayed far from my wife, I knew her eyes were radiant with thanksgiving. And that's the end of the story. I hope everyone enjoyed it. I think it's a beautiful story. But you know, the first time I read it, I thought, this dispels all my, the mystery of the birth of Christ. I know I don't like it, but, you know, it kind of bothered me because I guess I live in a mystical world when it comes to Christmas. But when you listen, really listen, and the story is just answers a lot of questions not that it maybe is what happened, but it's a beautiful story of human nature and how people take care of each other. And it probably, there was, you know, things happened about that way. 
And, and it is. And if you think about it, I mean, there's a huge contrast here, I think, between the men and the women. Oh, yeah. I mean, there's uh, the, the, the Mary, you know, Joseph, her husband, he has a lot of doubt. He's not certain about things. Uh, he's he's worried. protecting her. He is, but he's also worried, you know, that things will go wrong. And uh, he takes everything a different way than Mary accept things, you know, more faithfully and uh, confident that you know, things are the way they should be and it'll go well. He, he becomes a little indignant that, you know, that they're going to have to have their child in a stable. And uh, he's a little bit angry with God because he says, you know, where are you when I need you? I was counting on having things my way. Uh, you were going to be with my brother and his wife and everything would be taken care of. And here I am stuck in this place. And how am I going to get through it? Mary doesn't seem to have any worry about getting through it. Ruth comes right in, the, the innkeeper's uh, uh, wife, and takes over. She's confident that she can do what she needs to do. And the innkeeper himself, he was actually, I think, a little reluctant, don't you think, to sleep in that cave? Uh, with, with, didn't he, he? Joseph, you mean? Yeah, well, the, Micah, the innkeeper. Yeah. He, he says, oh, I can't, I, you know, I'd stay out here, and my wife would stay out here, but she isn't feeling well, and she has to stay in our bedroom. Yeah. But yet she comes right out there mm-hmm. with no problem, takes over and handles the birth. And uh, she says, my sickness is mostly of the heart. Right. So. Okay, we're going to have to stop here and take a break. But it is interesting to see the contrast. Yes. Don't you you think? Mm -hmm. So we're going to stop here and take a break. So stay with us. We'll be right back. You've been listening to Being Catholic with Bob Johnston on Catholic Spirit Radio. Jesus said, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. It was because of these words of Christ that Catholic Spirit Radio was founded. As Christians, we should evangelize because our love of God and neighbor compels us to do so. By supporting Catholic Spirit Radio, you are participating in the work of evangelization and fulfilling your Christian duty. May God bless you generously for doing so. Christmas and year-end giving constitutes one-third of all charitable donations made annually. Please join others in supporting Catholic Spirit Radio during December. Donations do great good and are tax-deductible. To give to our Christmas and year-end giving campaign, please visit our website at catholicspiritradio.com today. Hi, this is Bob Johnston. You're listening to Being Catholic right here on Catholic Spirit Radio. We're back from our break, and uh, we were talking about the story that uh, has just been read, The Innkeeper's Wife. And I want to say again that this short story was taken from a, a novel written by Joseph Benevento, who was a professor of uh, literature and English uh, in uh, Missouri. And he taught uh, at uh, Truman State University there in Kirksville. And he has taken this story, adapted it from his novel, My Perfect Wife or Perfect Son. And uh, that novel is available through Addison and Highsmith uh, and uh, publishers. And you can get that, of course, I'm sure, on Amazon. Uh, or you can go to you know the local bookstore and order it there. Uh, anything that is, uh, any royalties that he makes on the novel will be donated to Catholic Charities of Central and Northern Missouri. So 
again, in case you wanted to get that book. But, right. Uh, is there anything further you'd like to say about well, the story several itself? Several things uh, about the author. <clears throat> he taught at Truman State. That's where my niece graduated for her undergraduate work at Truman State. And she was the copywriter and editor of uh, the, the college or university's uh, newspaper at the time. And this has been, he's probably was teaching there. I bet she knows him. Probably so, because he's you know he's been there there for forty years, just recently retired. So yeah, yeah, I bet she did. That um, that was interesting. How often you come across a you know from a small college like that? Actually, you know Truman State is like comparable to our Illinois, uh, Eastern Illinois, as far as. The, where it's at and so forth in the size. Anyhow, that's beside the point. The story to me was very warm and the warmness and uh, goodness that come out in people. You got the idea, you know, the Roman soldiers were there. They were, you could just picture they were a rough bunch, I'm sure. In the, but the goodness of the innkeeper his wife, and even the animals. I can't wait. I'd like to, I'm going to send for that book. Yeah. I'd like to read it, and I'd like to wonder how he, his take on the uh, the shepherds and so forth, what that would be. I bet that'd be a very interesting st to read. Yes, it would. And the thing is, is that the arrangement uh, was an arrangement that uh, was pretty common right up until what the last century, actually, or maybe even the early part of uh, uh, the early part of the nineteenth century. I mean, all the way up through the nineteenth century, and even the early part of the twentieth century, uh, people rented out, uh, you know, the rooms, a, a bedroom yes. or an overnight room for guests mm -hmm. and so forth was common during Lincoln's time. We have a lot of you know, and you read about Lincoln on the circuit. Uh, you know, there weren't always hotels and so forth and inns where you could have a private room. And everything, oh, you know, no. a lot of times they all slept yeah, together. You stayed where you know you might be a little town or something, and some farmer or something would have a upstairs room, and maybe three or four people would have to sleep in the, in that room. A couple would be sleeping in the beds. They'd often have a what they call a trundle bed that went under the regular bed, and they'd pull it out, and you slept uh, just a little bit off the floor on that. Or even people would sleep on the floor. It just wasn't all of the you know what, what we're accustomed to today. No. No, it's not a, at all. So this one, but it is still humorous how how much that Micah, you know, he, he's talking about his goats and how important his goats are to him here while Mary's pregnant, going through her contractions, and and uh, you know, uh, Joseph is worried about the fact that it's unseemly to have the baby in the place like this because he was expecting something better. There's quite a contrast here if you really think about it. Yes, yeah, it's, it's interesting. Yeah, and the times. I mean. Those go back to where, you know, the people in their own groups, they trusted each other. They helped each other and thought, didn't think another thing about it. Most people, like even when we were growing up, that's how it was. You helped your neighbor. And uh, there's some things I think that may, maybe we're losing or have lost, that, you know, not completely or anything, but. There's another article here I'd like to read from that that it goes down the same line of uh, poor people, you know, who are 
not uh, powerful in the world and so forth, helping each other. And uh, it's a, a uh, article. It's a long article. Actually, I'm you know only going to read part of it. And it's written, it's called The Lost Civilization of American Catholicism. And uh, it's written by Donald Las Penoso. And uh, it also appears in the same magazine. It appears in uh, New Ox- the New Oxford Re- Review. And that's the December 2023 issue. The same issue as the short story that appeared. And it's uh, titled, Not As the World Giveth. And he's talking about uh, this man here, uh, Don Lapanuso, received his education from the Sisters of Charity of Halifax in Queens County, New York. And he holds degrees from Fordham University, Downstate Medical Center, and Columbia University. And he's a pediatric nurse practitioner since 1987 and has been a primary care provider for thousands of infants and children. <laughs> and has been a member of the faculties of several colleges and universities. And he was doing some research in this now defunct library on the fourth floor of an old seminary in Brooklyn, New York. And he comes across all of these uh, newspapers and uh, bulletins and so forth from that diocese there in Brooklyn. And a record, you know, going back all the way from the 1930s to the 1940s to the early 1950s. And he finds out about all of these people, these priests and also lay people who did so much through the newspapers and so forth. He finds this out that did so much to, you know, just ordinary people, mostly poor people, helping each other, doing so much, uh, taking the church so seriously and helping priests in their missionary work and uh, doing a lot of other charitable things to help other people and help themselves. People who didn't have much themselves and who went through a time, especially during the depression of the 1930s, the war during the 1940s, and then, you know, right after that in the early 1950s. And in doing this research in this library, he discovered in this, in a sense, a, a whole uh, different Catholic world and like he says, it's it's a wonderful gold mine of information, and he wants to share it. And uh, so I'm going to read from that article and uh, talk a little bit, because these stories are certainly apropos for Christmas. They're very appropriate, uh, because it's the kind of giving and so forth that you find at Christmas that these people were doing regularly and without much of a thought, just ordinary Catholic work uh, throughout the whole year. And uh, so I'm going to read from Not As the World Giveth. And it says here, The history of the past ends in the present, and the present is our scene of trial. And to behave ourselves toward its various phenomena duly and religiously, we must understand them. And to understand them, we must have recourse to those past events which led to them. Thus, the present is a text, and the past is its interpretation. And that's from John Henry Newman, Cardinal, you know, Cardinal Newman, who is, uh, of course, a very uh, famous cardinal, uh, did a lot of writing and uh, converted from the Anglican Church to Catholicism uh, back in the 19th century when it was not an easy thing to do. And, of course, you would get tremendous amount of pushback and flack from uh, the people that you knew at that time, especially in England. And uh, that's 
John Henry Newman is talking about how important that is, that is uh, to understand the past and uh, be able to interpret what's going on today because we do understand the past. So history and keeping our history and historical things is very, very important. And he's talking about the, the man that writes this article, Donald Los Penuso, is talking about how important it was for him to discover all of this Catholic history of the this this era, you know, the, the late 1930s, early 1940s, and early 1950s, or through the 1940s into the early 1950s, how important it was for him to read all of this and to get a picture of the Catholicism, you know, that was going on and understanding that we have lost so much in modernism and we need as Catholics to recover our history, especially what I would consider our recent history because this era, except for the 1930s, uh, my wife and I were born in the early 1940s and lived through all of this, very, maybe at a very young time, but nevertheless, you know, it's in our lifetime. And so for a man to look at this as something that has to be recovered is sort of a, makes... It's nostalgic. Yeah, nostalgic, but at the same time makes me understand how important some of the things we live through really are. You know, you don't understand it that way when you're living through it. True. And uh, so anyway, it says in the note here also, the being this article, it says the library about which you will read closed its doors to the public in 2020. So, I mean, this library now is closed. I mean, we're losing a lot of uh, valuable uh, Catholic uh, history, and it needs to be recovered. And, th- and that's what this article is talking about. So I'll read from it. In the top story of a vast building, mostly deserted, at spare times and odd hours during the past year, I have been searching for the remnants and traces, the documentations of a lost civilization. I have been ransacking as diligently as any determined thief. If our Lord likened himself to a thief in the night, should I abhor the comparison? But as in his case, so in mine, the analogy has limits. My presence occurs with the consent of responsible authorities, and I am more than willing to display my hoard. Moreover, the common thief would not recognize as treasures what I have found. More precious than the most precious stones— though they be in plain sight and ready available to the eager confiscator. The kingdom of heaven is like this. On the fourth floor of the seminary of the Immaculate Conception in Huntington, New York, is a library containing extensive holdings in philosophy, theology, and all things related to the Catholic Church. I have been perusing enormous tomes that contain the original editions of the Brooklyn Diocesan newspaper, The Tablet, from 1946 to 1952, and later in the article he talks about some things from the 1930s. The originals, unindexed, are bound by the year in weighty black bindings. The pages are fragile, tearing with the slightest excess pressure, so each must laboriously be turned as a unit. Inadequate is the term yellowed. They have been dyed by time with the half-tints and combinations found not on the flamboyant, but rather those colors apricot, peach, ecru, saffron, on the subdued leaves of autumn. So much is contained in these autumnal pages of the lives and writings of devout persons of Brooklyn, 
of priests, nuns, and brothers, of laymen of every stripe, of parishes, schools, hospitals, orphanages, charitable organizations, of lectures, sermons, pastoral letters, commentaries, opinions, and debates, and significantly extensive reporting on the works of missionaries from Brooklyn who traveled to every part of the earth. Added to this, much about the church beyond Brooklyn. It is simply overwhelming and exceedingly humbling to realize that each person encountered through this medium, every indication, every vestige should be treasured while simultaneously acknowledging the inability to do so. Yet, by a faithful intuition, we may glimpse, however fleeting, the truth that this must be so and must be accomplished by someone external, inexhaustible, merciful, and just. I have thought at times that I am not simply scouring newspapers, written treasure houses, so much as I am rummaging through the mind of God. Let me turn over here. He goes on. He says, all these things came to my attention because they simply could not be overlooked. There are, for instance, stories of a priest who piloted his own small plane to mission outposts within the Arctic Circle, a priest who included in his work as a good shepherd in India, becoming a big game hunter in order to protect his people's lives and livestock, their livelihood from predatory tigers, a priest who established a school for the deaf called Ifatha in Tehran, Iran, a photograph shows the children dressed for a pantomime, Mother Xavierine, a Belgium nun and surgeon who opened the first hospital in Mongolia, a priest who brought medicines to China that saved 200 people from malaria and then rescued a Mandarin and five companions who had fallen into a deep ravine. Mass conversions followed. A town in India of 300 Catholic inhabitants from which came one bishop, 12 priests, eight nuns, and one brother. Bishop Porter and certain medical mission sisters who in order to break a superstition of a West African tribe concerning every tenth child a woman may bear, being a child of evil, who would then be killed, rescued these children, sometimes by kidnapping them, raised them, and then showed the tribesmen that these children had grown up married and had children of their own. Another tribe in Africa in which any twin and every child of a multiple birth except one would be killed a superstition broken by the visitation of Father Joseph and Father Stanley Otto, twins who were priests. Some areas in the United States were also mission territories. Father Flavian O'Donnell of Ireland joined forces with the Sisters of the Immaculate Heart from Marywood University in Scranton, Pennsylvania, who opened a colored mission in Washington, North Carolina. He wrote, You should see some of the polished young ladies they have turned out among their graduates. A high mass was celebrated each day of the year with Gregorian chant sung by the students. He writes that these children and their families are the poorest of the poor. Things were as as bad as what he saw as a military chaplain in Italy and Africa during World War II. He tells of a fine colored man 
who approached him for religious instruction, who told him, people are saying so many and such nasty things about the Catholic Church that I cannot help but think there must be some good in it, and I am going to find out about it. How does one characterize a Catholic civilization? How can one do so in a short compass? Perhaps by relating stories of individuals that prompt reflections by which one may intuit what constitutes just such a civilization, which, after all, has no substantial existence apart from individual human beings, their lives, thoughts, and works, along with the Holy Spirit and the angels. We'll have to stop here and take a break, so stay with us. We'll be right back. You've been listening to Being Catholic with Bob Johnston on Catholic Spirit Radio. Hi, this is Kathy and Anne from Catholic Spirit Radio. We are looking for folks who would love to volunteer with us during our fundraisers and various other station events and tasks throughout the year. We really need volunteers in the DeKalb, Sycamore, Morris, Joliet, and Lincoln areas, as well as Bloomington Normal. If you have a few extra hours or more a month, put them to use for the Lord. We would love to add your name to our Catholic Spirit Radio volunteer list. Contact us at office at catholicspiritradio.org. There's a new app, so Catholic Spirit Radio listeners with new phones, tablets, and other listening devices can also listen to our programs and podcasts. Go to your Google Play or Apple App Store to find the app Catholic Spirit Talk Radio. It's free. New app, same quality programs. Christmas and year-end giving constitutes one-third of all charitable donations made annually. Please join others in supporting Catholic Spirit Radio during December. Donations do great good and are tax-deductible. To give to our Christmas and year-end giving campaign, please visit our website at catholicspiritradio.com today. Jesus said, Make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. It was because of these words of Christ that Catholic Spirit Radio was founded. As Christians, we should evangelize because our love of God and neighbor compels us to do so. By supporting Catholic Spirit Radio, you are participating in the work of evangelization and fulfilling your Christian duty. May God bless you generously for doing so. Hi, this is Bob Johnston. We're back from our break. We're talking here about uh, this man who is doing research in a, an abandoned seminary, a, a defunct seminary, which later, you know, yeah, the top floor being a library, and uh, going through a lot of the newspapers, bulletins, and so forth, and information about the Catholic uh, Church that went on in that area. Uh, during especially the 1940s and uh, early 1950s, and the kind of work it was doing and the people that were involved and how much uh, all these people were doing, most of them poor themselves, who were people who weren't, you know, poverty-stricken but weren't making a lot of money, just ordinary people doing all of the, the things necessary to create and preserve a Catholic Christian civilization. And uh, he's saying it's like discovering, you know, a, a brand new civilization that he wasn't sure existed before. And it's uh, part of our history and, and something that needs to be kept and preserved. And so I'll finish reading from the, this article. And I'm just reading just some of the articles. It's a very long article that goes on with many more things than I can cover here. But these are the highlights and essentials. And he goes on. He asks the question, what is a 
Catholic Christian civilization, one in which persons poor themselves give of their meager wealth in order to help other persons poorer than they, whom they will never meet, one in which priests, nuns, brothers, and laymen uh, travel to the most remote and inhospitable parts of the earth and feed the hungry, clothe the naked, shelter the homeless, instruct the ignorant, and heal the sick, and one in which inestimable gifts may be imparted, faith, hope, charity, God himself is what he's talking about. These are some of the things that we have perhaps lost. I know there are, of course, you know, a lot of things still going on today, but we need to recover a lot of our ordinary history and understand uh, even our recent history, how much good and how much work uh, the Catholic Church has done and understand that most of it was done through ordinary people who themselves didn't ever have a lot of money or earn a lot, and they gave a lot of their lives. And this article talks about other places as well. It generalizes about other places. The, the man is not just trying to point out that uh, Brooklyn, New York, was some kind of an exceptional place. This is simply an example of what has the Catholic Church had done at the time all over the country and all over the world. And the man sums up, he says, I travel over time's ocean, up four flights of broad stairways, beneath coffered ceilings, to the top floor of a deserted building where symbols may be found, indications pointing toward and representations that speak of the dead, each one of whom lives and will always live, and this too is peace. And I thought this also is very appropriate, you know, for Christmas, uh, the fact that this went on in places all over the United States, and uh, just looking at our own hometown, you know, look at look at the churches in our own hometown, Lynn, beautiful churches that were preserved by just the ordinary working citizens there, like your father and my father and other people who never earned a lot of money. We're just, you know, ordinary, uh, I don't know, know, even upper class, maybe middle, middle class or even lower class uh, citizens who gave a lot of their time and their uh, money and effort to build these places. And so many are going by the wayside. You know, so many beautiful places are being lost. And this man here is saying, we need to rediscover what a truly Catholic civilization was like. And I can't help but think that, you know, we lived through this era. We were younger then. And we really didn't even realize this was happening. You know, what is that song, the old saying, you know, that yeah, you don't know no. what you got until mm-hmm. it's gone? Yep. Carpenters. Yeah. Yeah. Saying that. Yeah. You don't know what you got till it's gone. Right. Tear down to paradise and right. build a parking lot. Yeah, right. You build a parking lot. And it seems like a lot of that is what we're doing. And and especially a lot of this is appropriate to Christmas because these articles that represent the giving of these people living in this era. And we need to rediscover it. So I'll That's let right. you talk a little bit more about it. Okay. We do. We need to bring it back. And, you know, I think Christmas brings about, especially in the first story, brings it out. And then uh, it ties into this, too. But in the first story, there was the sacredness of life within, you know, the community that uh, Mary and Joseph lived. I'm not so sure about the Romans. I don't think they had that. That's feeling of sacredness of life. But 
<clears throat> the protectiveness and the help they were giving Mary because she was pregnant and new life was coming. And they were not going to let anything happen that would prevent that from happening, for that baby being born and the mother to survive. The protectiveness of the men around her that protected her, even Micah, you know, make sure that she was all right. You don't see that anymore. And I, you know, it's all because I don't care what the liberals say or anything. You lose that respect for life, the preservation of life, and you lose so much that you can't even express. If you're not going to protect life and you're destroying life and killing unborn babies and so forth, no wonder nobody thinks anything about going out and shooting somebody. For why would you think about it, you know? You don't need to have this life, you know, it's just it's just nothing. It's going to destroy it. Us like our culture, just like it destroyed Rome, the Roman Empire, that loss of respect of life. They didn't respect life. They were crucifying people. They were, their abortions, they induced abortions. They uh, practiced birth control. The homosexual community was very, it was not thought that it was anything different, you know, and that is of turning your back on life, too, because you aren't producing. You are not nourishing life. You're, you're more self-centered. I mean, it was not uncommon in the Roman uh, culture to a man to be married and have, a, have kids when he, when he wanted to. And uh, still have uh, a homosexual relationship or a lesbian women with a lesbian relationship. It was not uncommon. And look what happened to them. We're going down the same road. Well, it seems to me that uh, when people begin not worshiping God, abandoning the worship of God, and becoming more atheistically oriented in their lives— that they begin worshiping themselves. Exactly. And, uh, they become their own gods, and uh, they become very self-centered and turn inward and turn away from this public outwardness and uh, desire and and uh, just taking for granted that it's their purpose in life to help each other and their purpose in life to help other people, bring them up you know, to their level. And uh, that's what we see that you know a lot of it is being lost, and uh, we live in a society that becomes more and more materialistic uh, when people begin to worship themselves. I don't think they get a lot of satisfaction out of it uh, because they know that what they're worshiping is not uh, worth giving uh, the kind of worship that you give to God. And so they try to make a lot of that up by substituting material things and so forth, and it doesn't work. And uh, I think we begin on a downward spiral. I don't want to be getting too negative here. This is no. Christmas. But the thing is, is it, there are some beautiful things about ordinary Catholicism that we should be very, very proud of in the history of the Catholic Church 
and we should discover this history, teach it, and recover it, and keep it, and pass it on to the next generation, because that's what Catholicism is all about. It's about handing on what was given to us and handing it on without changing it, handing it on untouched from one generation to the next, you know, from one group of teachers right. to the next group of teachers. And it's a it's, it's something that's done not through books. Uh, it's done through the actual teaching and doing, just like Christ uh, said to the apostles, go out into the world and teach every, you know, everything that I have commanded you to do. And uh, that's exactly what he did was he formed a church. And we need to recover that church and keep handing that church on to future generations. And that comes through living in the culture of what was intended. The church, you know, within the church, within what you were taught, the important thing is handing that on down and all the things that go around with it and celebrating all the sacred feasts and especially Christmas with the coming of the Christ child into our hearts. That's how you have peace. I can't explain it. There is a peace you have when you believe. And it's been proven even in the concentration camps. The people that survived had the most faith, not in themselves, but in God. And they did far much better. The coming of the Christ child, to me, is that it's like John said, in the beginning was the light, and the light was with us. And it was the word, and it came, it was given to us. And then speaking of uh, the Romans, I want to get one other thing in here as long as we're able to. Speaking of Roman times and Romans and what happened with, with the Romans, we still have a lot of uh, people who are opposed to the Catholic Church, uh, atheists, and then maybe just you know other people who simply oppose the church, try to show that somehow uh, Catholicism incorporates some kind of paganism. And one of the things about Christmas we need to dispel, uh, there's a myth going on, and it goes on about a lot of the modern atheists who are uh, – pretty prominent in their writing and so forth in our schools and universities today, that somehow a lot of the stories, you know, and uh, ideas and, and uh, worship uh, theology and so forth, the Catholic Church was actually taken from paganism. And there is this story that somehow or another the uh, Christmas, the whole idea of Christmas and Christ's birth being in December and on the 25th and so forth was all taken from paganism. It was taken from the Roman celebration of the sun. That exactly. somehow the yeah. you know the winter solstice, the uh, sun celebration, and so forth. This celebration that the Christmas story was was taken in order to you know from that uh, either in order to replace it or simply you know modified so that the Christians could use it to advance Christianity using what was given to them you know actually by paganism and the Romans. And this is simply not true. Uh, for one thing, the uh, worship of the sun, you know, the the uh, p- pagan celebration, the Roman celebration of the winter solstice was not instituted until A.D. 234 by Marcus Aurelius, one of the Roman emperors. He instituted it 200 and some years after Christianity was already in existence, 
and after we can already go back and see that there was a good deal of the Christmas story already being passed around and believed by Christians at that time. So we know definitely that it did not come from the Romans to the Christians. It came from the Christians to the Romans, and the Romans were trying to compete with the Christians. Their civilization was beginning to decline, and they were trying to give it credibility and restoration, and they were actually, in, in effect, following the Christian story and trying to convert it, you know, into a, a pagan story uh, to capture the uh, credibility and glory of what was, you know, gro- a growing Christianity. That's right. So, and uh, you were, we were talking about it earlier before we got here. Uh, knowing when Christ was born, it can be proven almost, maybe not to the exact day, but pretty much the same time due to the Jewish tradition and how things went. Yeah. We know when John the Baptist was born. We know that, uh, we know when Mary conceived and when he, when Jesus was born. You might explain a little bit about that with the, and it goes back to the, uh, the, when the priests served in the temple there were groups of priests, and certain groups were assigned at certain times, and those records were kept. And uh, you want to go on into sure. that? Yeah, when you know Elizabeth's husband Zechariah was a temple priest, and yes. we 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 know when they, you know they know when the temple was destroyed, and they can look, the temple priests had certain assignments during certain times of the year. They they were in, in various categories. You know, and Zechariah was in what they called, you know, the eighth category or the eighth pillar, something like that. I can't remember exactly the word they used. And so it would have been known when he served as a priest and when he was, when he didn't anyway from this, and I, I can't go into it all right now, they can understand that uh, Elizabeth uh, had to conceive, you know, John in her womb in the month of October. And so we know also that Mary, as soon as she found out that she was pregnant, that she was with child, she went to visit Elizabeth. And John was already six months in Mary in uh, Elizabeth's womb when Elizabeth got to, to meet Elizabeth. So if uh, he was conceived, uh, you know, John was conceived in October. If you count down six months from October, this would have been late March. So Mary, being first pregnant, you know, having first conceived, must have conceived then in late March. Well, if she conceived in late March, then she would have given birth in late December. And that's how the Christians arrived. One of the ways, there were other ways as well, but that was just one of the ways that they arrived at the, the December 25th date. There were other ways of arriving at it as well, but two or three way, ways coincided. And so December 25th was chosen as a date. And there's a lot of evidence to show that that's very likely that it was the date that he was born because somewhere around there, because he would have been conceived in, in, in late March. And, uh, and then also we know that the fact is, is that it was taken for granted by a lot of people that somehow paganism comes before Christianity. So therefore the worship, uh, you know, the, the, the winter solstice, the worship of the sun, uh, that, that winter solstice day, the, you know, being a, a, a prominent or holy day of the pagan religion, 
must have been prior to Christianity, when in reality it wasn't. In reality, that was declared by Marcus Aurelius 200 and some years after Christianity was already in existence. So that that goes by the wayside as well. At any rate, we can, I hope we that— We can talk more yeah. about that at, during the Christmas season, right. which runs after, from Christmas Day to the birth of uh, the— uh, Baptism of Christ. Exactly. So why don't we plan on doing that? So we'll plan on, to, on talking a little bit more about Mary, and we're talking about uh, yeah the birth of Christ and how those dates became about, and the fact that there's a lot of uh, uh, things being said about uh, Christianity in general, Catholicism in particular, that, that have come from paganism that just aren't so. And Chris, right. the Christmas story is one of them that just isn't so. It didn't come from paganism at all. Yeah. Well, so. prepare to receive the true peace. It's through Christ. Anyway, for his coming. Merry Christmas out there, everybody, and a happy New Year as well. And we'll see you after the holidays. So we're going to say our prayer, St. Michael the Archangel, defend, defend us in battle. Be, be our, our protection against, against the wickedness, wickedness and snares, snares of the devil. The devil. May, God May God rebuke him, we humbly pray. pray. And, and do, do thou, Prince, Prince of the Heavenly Host, by the power of God, thrust into hell Satan and all evil spirits, spirits who wander, wander through the world, world through the room of souls. souls. Amen. Amen. You've been listening to Being Catholic with Bob Johnston on Catholic Spirit Radio. If you'd like to contact Bob, email bob at catholicspiritradio.com. Again, that's bob at catholicspiritradio.com. Com. Catholic Spirit Radio relies on your support to bring programming like this and EWTN 24 hours a day. Please help keep Catholic Spirit Radio on the air with your generous support. Donate online at catholicspiritradio.com or send a donation to Catholic Spirit Radio, 108 Boykins Place, Normal, Illinois, 61761. That's Catholic Spirit Radio, 108 Boykins Place, Normal, Illinois, 61761. Catholic Spirit Radio is a 501c3, and all donations are tax-deductible. Thank you for your support of Catholic Spirit Radio 